0: Hey guys, welcome back to VS Energy's Commissioning Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton and Here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing performance contract failures. And in this podcast, we'll be discussing some of the causes, cases, and remediations for these. So like always, I think a good starting point for this podcast is kind of to outline what a performance contract is and maybe compare it to, I guess, what would what you'd consider like a, a internally funded energy project? Like that'd be something you'd kind of compare it to, right?
1: Well, a performance contract in the big picture is any contract where you, as a contractor, or you as an individual, gets paid by based on measurable performance. So, the ESPC world is energy service performance contracts. Wherein the energy service company is paid based on measurable energy or operation cost reductions, a uh, key word being measurable, and that goes back to our IPMVP discussion or M and V discussion uh, in an earlier podcast. But it's all about being paid based on measurable performance.
2: Yeah. So just to add to that, so the ESCO in that case for a performance contract would be responsible for the design, the procurement, construction, installation, securing financing as well. And then the savings that they generate year after year service that, that debt obligation. And I guess that would be contrasted to an internally funded project where the capital comes from within the organization. Is it fair to
1: sum it up like that? It is. And then going to the next step, the largest differentiator between, well, there's two major differentiators. One is economic and the other is physical. But the biggest differentiator between uh, ESPC contracts and internally funded projects is that the risk of non-performance, either cost overruns, failure to perform, are borne largely by the ESCO. So what does that mean uh, to an owner? The shift uh, of risk comes at the addition of cost, which is basically known as the risk premium, which is in addition to profit and overhead. That's the financial side. Physically, larger projects can happen more rapidly with a single entity than moving through a plan, design, bid, build, process process. Uh, when it's handed over to an ESCO to integrate those functions and move the project ahead more quickly.
0: So Mark, like the, you're saying that as an, as a owner, giving the, having the ESCO do the project as a performance contract can actually push it ahead a little bit quicker as opposed to just doing an internally funded you know plan and spec embedded out project. Absolutely. Okay, I would have thought it a little bit opposite, honestly, just for time and detail and you know all that being put into place. Okay, so let's
1: just take as an example: we want to do a five million dollar project, right? Right. To you know upgrade the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you want to do this internally? What's the biggest hurdle internally?
0: Money. Yeah, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the money, and to get the money you need to do basically engineering up front to do the financial justification mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to justify that capital expenditure. Most entities, if they're for profit, you always have a higher internal uh, hurdle rate yep. that says, look, do I want to do this or do I want to invest in my manufacturing capacity? Do I want to invest in another building? And in the public sector, there's no mechanism at all uh, to really to fund capital expenditures, unless it's bond issuance, mm-hmm. that's not a that's not a well received avenue for funding anything these days. So, uh, yeah, it can definitely happen faster with a performance contract.
2: Yeah, and I think the key is there. There's there's usually a uh, a project development agreement in place where so the ESCO is bearing you know a lot of the risk there for right coming up with even the concept of it. And then, you know, the, the the client, the customer has a stake in it, but it's a nominal fee compared to, like Mark was saying, what it would take for them to get to that stage by themselves. Okay. In terms but of capital then, yeah. and other
1: resources too. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and so let's just say it's a $5 million project and the savings would be, the cost of would be, pick a number, $600,000 a year. Every year that you don't get it done, you just flushed another six hundred grand down the toilet of lost uh opportunity so if i can get it done a year faster or a mm-hmm. year and a half faster that's, that's six true. or nine hundred thousand dollars in avoidance that you can capture
0: yep yep all no that that makes sense that's a good great way to put it and then with that being said obviously this podcast is geared towards failed performance contracts right um and just going through it so far i think we've we've made it pretty clear that the uh The ESCO inherits a lot of the risk on these projects, but could you guys just discuss kind of some,
1: the risk taken on on both ends of the spectrum for me? So I'm going to go back to the beginning of performance contract. I was contracting, I was fortunate enough to be involved in the business in the eighties and there were really four types of contracts, shared savings, very simple it is what it says you calculate the savings and there's a ratio yep. that is paid out to either the esco or the owner yep usually they were 80 20 90 10 and they would say well, why not 50 50 well because the esco has to pay for everything right um, so it, that's not a that's not a um mm-hmm. acceptable contract structure paid from savings which basically is a a floating kind of ratio that says On any given day, you know, your minimum payment to the ESCO will be this, but it allows customers as a a derivative of shared savings to have a steady payment versus a fluctuating payment as in shared savings. Okay. And the third was, you know, purchase lease or installment sale with a guarantee pretty simple also, Mm -hmm. and then chauffage contracts, which were the most complex, the ESPC would take responsibility for all energy costs, may even buy out the energy plant, sell energy, compress their other utilities back to the owner. Um, and it, during, you know, the 80s, uh, large ESCOs almost entirely self-funded because the financial markets hadn't really gotten up to speed on the concept and mechanisms for understanding cost avoidance. But that's really kind of gone away. So now we have evolved to the point where almost all ESPCs are lease or installment sales with a guarantee financial organizations fund these things competitively. So mm-hmm. you can go out and get competitive bidding on financing and uh, owners have mitigated risks by hiring or developing high quality energy professionals to write RFPs, monitor project installation, perform independent M and V. Mm-hmm. Maybe embedded in a dashboard or otherwise verify savings. And ESCOs now have huge risk mitigation tools and processes in place. I know I've personally been involved in many, many meetings where high level executives are scrutinizing the largest project details. And the M and V teams are large and well trained. So, you know, look at that in comparison to a capital improvement project done internally. Right. Is there usually a energy professional? Maybe, maybe not. Is there someone who has has had experience in measurement and verification? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe there is. How about the commissioning team? So I, I think energy infrastructure projects have, in general, and I'll say that in general, a higher probability of success, especially for institutional entities moving through the ESCO process than internally. Now, there are a lot of big companies, you know, Toyota Motor Company, uh, Ford Motor Company have mm-hmm. terrific internal resources and teams right. focused on building energy projects, but that's what they do for a living as well as outside ESCOs. So in that case, would you send work outside and pay the risk premium when you can mitigate the risk just as well? Probably not.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, your standard school district or, you know, what have you, yeah, it doesn't have that resource available and probably they don't want that resource available necessarily. Yeah, and I think most facilities probably and organizations fit into that latter camp. Yeah, it seems like obviously the owner inherits the risk just because if something fails or the performance contract doesn't go as planned, you know, They won't have the savings, but being a performance contract, if it's guaranteed savings, that all of that risk falls on the ESCO then pretty much, right? So like if I'm an owner and they say they're going to save me, I don't know, $100,000 a year and it doesn't happen, I'm not losing $100,000 a year as an owner, right? Well, no, I would say there's (laughs) some cases where, I mean, and that's really, you know,
2: it's all just how risk is, you know, there's almost a finite amount of risk on any project. Right. Right. how does it get divvied up? Right, but to say that hundred grand, you know, a year. What if the weather changes? You know, is the ESCO responsible for that? Well, no, they clearly say they're not. In most okay. Tracks. Yep. Um, yep. They're you know by default then, it's nobody's fault, but it's the customer's responsibility essentially. They do bear, mm-hmm. you know, that risk for that. Okay. Oh, oh wait, wait. What, what risk for what? Uh, a change in, let's say a change oh, in energy, uh, you know, in weather conditions or load in their building, right? right? right. And if that yep, load yep. is not there any longer and you're, I mean, it's a very interesting study, I think, particularly right now, uh, you know, for a first time, I think you're seeing a lot of facilities that have a lower load than they did last year, you know, for obvious reasons with yeah, occupancy right. and everything. And so yep, I know... Right there are people examining their contracts now saying, do we have protections in there, you know, from the ESCO side? Right. Because if there isn't that kind of floor built into it and that load type of discussion, then it, you know, it, it can get tricky. So the risk isn't all, I, I just want to clarify clean. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It isn't all because the ESCO says, we're guaranteeing you a million dollars in savings. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nuance under, in those contracts and again to talk to the expertise of you know the internal resources of an organization that's a big part of it too the in their skill sets they have in reviewing what can be very complex projects right and when you have these projects going out 20 plus years mm-hmm. and nobody at the customer site maybe will envision themselves there in 20 years or if it's a government agency or You know, so there's just there are a lot of considerations that need to be, I guess, examined. It isn't that clear cut who has the risk necessarily.
1: Well, I agree with that, and and the assignment of risk is one issue. The other issue that's equally important is what are the remedies that are specified in the contract. You'll find very few contracts that are on the first pass. Say we'll write you a check almost all are services in kind related, the opportunity to make up a shortfall in X number of successive periods. So if you are waiting for a check, it may be several years until you get a check uh, if there's a shortfall. And there may be in, in many contracts, you're not entitled to a check at all. And that just means you get in kind goods and services, which means that um they charge out their tech rate at 225 an hour and you get this much an hour well let me tell you that's negotiation 101 where you offer things that have low value to you and high high perceived value to the customer yep and nobody's losing money on that deal on the esco side so you know there's there's value and my my um recommendation at this point would be if you're planning on getting into an ESCO contract, make sure your attorney's involved. Make sure you have an energy professional involved, someone with ESCO interaction experience, ESCO contract experience mm-hmm. because it's not just a, oh, we'll get an ESCO to do it. It's not that easy.
0: Yeah. It seems like it's very obviously contract oriented, you know, obviously you need to, you understand the engineering principles and the, you know, economics and all of that. But there's a lot of verbiage in the contract that can probably make or break you depending on what end of the spectrum you're on, (laughs) if something does go wrong. Yeah.
2: Well, and that's what's interesting. I think when you, when you think in terms of failures of performance contracts, you know, is it that, can you have it where one party has failed, the other one is fine or both parties have lost out on the deal and then, i guess the definition of you know what do we mean when we say a performance contract fail we typically think the savings weren't met right met. yeah the, yeah the savings weren't met but you know and maybe we won't get into this but there are so many different ways that performance contracts can fail when you talk about even the profitability of the construction right for the esco when you talk about the ongoing service and and maintenance that happens or is supposed to happen for years after that you know, they can get upside down on that too. And it's a very long and unprofitable venture for them, mm-hmm. the service phase of that. And potentially the worst failure, I think, because, you know, shortfalls can be overcome. So just because something didn't go right out of construction, mm-hmm. you know, it's not optimal, but they ha- they can be corrected. And many do, and at least most of them do. Right. But, uh, you know, the worst thing, I think, when you get in these large performance contracts at large facilities and corporations is that they don't want to do another phase with you. You know, if you're the ESCO, right. But some of these pro- I mean you're, you know, and that's the other part of really reducing competition. When we talk about incumbency and I know you guys talked about this in one of your earlier BMS for uh, a right. And those companies getting entrenched in a facility, and there's a lot of those great opportunities with performance contracts. You're taking everybody else off the street, but when ESCO goes in and they deliver a less than stunning initial report, or really uh, don't, I guess, secure the confidence of their customer that they're doing the right things out there, then, then that project has failed too. And you don't want any more part of them. So. But I think we're talking about mainly the failure well, of the savings to be generated here.
1: I think you, you extremely important point there, Nick. The, yeah, certainly that's one failure. The savings aren't generated, but the second part of it is where you said, well, they don't want to do another phase with you. N- number one, I mean, from my perspective, it's incumbent on the ESCO to do a, a, jo- a great job and make sure that the project works. But there are also customers who for lack of a better word, have perverse incentives. Of extracting every ounce of uh, financial upside from the ESCO and basically they're putting in their pocket or putting in their building because there is, you know, always we can always go back to the guarantee. We always have the guarantee. Whenever I hear a customer talking about we can always go to the guarantee, that's a red flag for me. Uh, The customers that are genuinely interested in the long term performance of the project, I mean, yeah, it's always there, but it's not the first issue that they want to talk about. And We've been involved in projects where they stacked ESCO contracts, one on top of another, and then claim that, you know, number two didn't do their job. Well, that's a very, very difficult scenario to unwind and unravel. And costly. <laughs> terrible.
0: You know, it's funny, as we talk about these performance contracts, and, and you talk about the contract, uh for some reason, my mind just keeps going to like an insurance policy in in a way. Like, you know, you're covered, but you can't, you can't be doing something, I don't want to say stupid, but you know, like, yeah, I probably can't go drive, drive my truck and do a guardrail and be like, oh, I'm going to just get a brand new truck if I just did it. You know, it's got, there's got to be a reason for the issue. I don't know. (laughs) seems like it always goes back to like, it's an insurance, like, Sounds like it's an insurance contract language. Like Well, I think the, the commonality, the, the things you might be thinking
2: about are like the, the responsibilities yes. that one party yes. has and then yeah. how does that affect the liability of the other? Yeah. And then that's is that, that that's a good point because if you know the facility goes in and changes their their schedules back and they revert to twenty-four seven operation, yeah. let's say, you know, and if, if the site clearly contractually has responsibility for managing those assets, which most of them do, then, you know, you're right. Then it's kind of the ESCO is clear of, of that obligation of the savings. Yeah. And so I here's, just, There's some, you know, commonality there, I guess. Yeah, here's I don't know.
1: A, here's a question for you guys. All right. And I actually wrote out this example because I was going to use it somewhere else. But this is a question for you guys. I won't give you the answer. Um, we were involved in a project where uh, an ESCO project where the boilers were tested and deemed to be 61% efficient by the ESCO based on the nameplate data and the hot water Delta T at measured flow, right? So they had 61% efficient boilers. There was no stack temperature measurement, no flue gas analysis. New non-condensing boilers were installed. The next year adjusted for weather gas consumption went up almost 30% for normalized for weather. It was determined from the boiler service company that the burners on the three 500 horsepower original boilers had been replaced with smaller burners at the request of the retired head of operations to reduce the boiler short cycling, which it did very well. But essentially, the guy derated the boilers so that he could keep them online and reduce the stack losses. When they went back to 500 horsepower, the boilers spiked like crazy. Stack losses went up. So now, question for you guys: Who's responsible for this? I would say the asco.
2: I was gonna go with the customer, but then you said <laughs> the, the, re, the retired whatever. Never. So he's not even a he's he's not even a party to this nope. anymore, is
0: he? No. Nope. No. Nope. The ESCO did de-
2: well, meaning meaning the yes like
1: he's a part of it. I, I, hey, I'm asking you guys. Uh, wow, it's, interesting.
0: Oh, I would I would as as crappy of a situation that is, I would almost put that on the ESCO. I mean, they they're the ones that analyze well, the existing boilers. S- s- you're, you're,
1: well, you're right. Well, so this was uh basically returned with a very nominal um award to the plaintiff who was the owner, not the ESCO, uh, which was, you know, uh, when I say nominal, I mean, it was a token that, okay, you're right, but it w- in no way offset the amount of energy avoidance that was that was missed, you know, in a mm-hmm. present value scenario because there was a determination that uh, the information regarding that burner change out was not, Provided to the ESCO, yeah. Even though they didn't ask for it, it was deemed that that information was relevant and should have been provided to the ESCO.
0: Yeah, yeah. You are kind of setting the ESCO up for failure in a way. Right. I mean, yep. Yep. you know, yeah. They probably could have, maybe should have dug a little bit deeper or what have you. But yeah, that suck. That's a that's a crappy position to be in as an ESCO, I guess.
1: That's crappy all the way around oh yeah yeah all the way around
0: I agree yep
2: and so where would that fall as far as because I kind of think of these failures as happening they're even they're either you know sourced in the design phase of the project itself design engineering or they're caused by construction or installation or it's in the, the management right and the ongoing maintenance of the system so this would be Oh, more of something that was in design phase then that caused this issue, correct?
1: So I, would I say. really don't know. I mean, I, I, I say, okay, we start at the beginning. What? When's the last time I saw a 61% efficient boiler? It's. I don't even know that I ever saw it. Well, maybe a cast iron sectional or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I would have to dig deeper if my audit team came and said, hey, these boilers are only 61% efficient. There's no gas test. There's no flu stack, uh, so, no nothing. So, no, I, I would have to dig a little deeper if I'm f- forming this as a foundational project, you know, in, a, in an ESCO project.
2: Yes, yeah, so there would be the source of it. So, you're going back to engineering design, the analysis
0: part of it. Right. I, and well, maybe I don't, depends, probably like, what time of year the boots on the ground were, if you wanted to call it that, and how much data you could get off the boilers, which I assume was none. Um, you'd, you'd probably question what, like, if those boilers, you're saying you're looking at these mass three big boilers for this facility and they're running a lot, you could probably raise some questions too. But if you were uh, what walk-
1: It would be a simple call to the boiler service company that maintains the boilers open inspection every year to just make the call and say, Hey, can you tell us about these boilers?
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Now flip that situation around and let's say the customer said, we know these boilers are 61% efficient. We've done our internal measurements run with it. ESCO, the ESCO builds a project based upon that.
1: Well, then you go to IPMVP option B, right? And all I'm doing is measuring new efficiency against old efficiency. I would say that's
0: all I'm saying. So
2: that's a
1: dangerous precedence
0: to go off in owners.
1: No, it it is dangerous, but there are many, many RFPs that come out that provide a significant amount of data in it that are then considered uh, part of the.
0: if it's data. in an RFP, I guess you're yeah. right. I mean, if I'm saying it, this is yeah. the contract and you said it was 60% efficient and it wasn't, sucks yep. to be you.
2: <laughs> I guess, yeah. Well, yeah. well, when you get into, you know, energy, the federal ESPC world, there's not an RFP per se. But, yeah. you know, so but so a lot of information can be exchanged throughout the development process. Mm-hmm. But and that's also a risk, too, because technically that would come back, I think, legally, to the customer providing information, right, to the to the ESCO, but, you know, I, I would see it more on the ESCO, to not, like, like I think we're getting back to that, that responsibility there is, still is to not just run with information you're given. There's a professional, you know, standard, if you will, that, you know, those numbers, especially when they're key drivers and key variables. Of yeah, right. Really yeah. big numbers, but you, you've seen it done before, you know, where did this number came from? Frank told oh, yeah. me. Right I got yeah. an email here where he says it. Well, you know, that's
0: not good enough. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, so. Especially I, if I,
0: you put the sensibility, like Mark said, you, okay, and this is percent, Really? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah.
1: But I will say, Nick, that everything, everything that is memorialized, meaning written, presented, recorded by anyone involved in the contract, is subject to review, and is information that or supports or defeats an argument. So if somebody sent that email that, hey, these boilers are 61% efficient, they've always been that way, um, then there it is. If it came from the customer or a customer's representative, the client's representative. So as we get into the remediation process, be aware that, you know anything you put in writing anything that you have recorded anything that you presented is all subject to scrutiny during the remediation process
2: and well, i do agree with that yeah. i think all of this last discussion kind of illustrated maybe that it's not even Cutting though the assignment yeah the assignment of risk may be clear on the paper you know there is a lot of A lot of details to be
0: uncovered, and it's not always as clear cut as you may think. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, Mark, that was, that was great. Great question. Sparked some great conversation. Uh, Really makes you think, though. Yeah. So um, to bring it back a little bit, not that we were really off the rails, but like what, and this is a, a very, broad question, I take it, but like, what is the magnitude of the dollar range of performance contracts? I mean, do they do some really, really small ones and obviously some extremely large ones? I assume it's just very facility dependent. There's got to be like a a point where you wouldn't do it or an ESCO wouldn't engage
1: though for smaller dollar amounts, right? Well, I was reviewing this last night and I kind of had a change of heart uh, because I... I I was going to say the threshold is one to $2 million to start with. Right. Which but, I would think. I mean, there are many smaller, well-established ESCOs um, that were, that are born out of mechanical contractors and those kinds of things that will readily undertake smaller projects and have good teams that can do it. You mm-hmm. know? So I think to get a national ESCO involved, you're at least a million or two to get them involved, and then it goes upwards to the hundreds right. of millions beyond right. that. Yeah. What do you think, Nick?
2: No, I totally agree, I think those smaller outfits are are much needed because, like you said, it's a you know it can be a good fit for lots of different customers. And yeah, that makes sense. But mm-hmm. you're right; the the bigger national firms, yeah, they're looking for the big dollar projects and the ones that are scalable into, you know, a phase two, perhaps, or a phase three. So, yeah, no, no, a much needed part of this whole landscape, though, those smaller, and I think you're seeing, at least from what I observe, a lot more reputable companies being involved in this. And uh, I think some of the bad press, you know, that was going around, well, there still is some, but, you know, was, was these, a lot of these companies that did not go through any of the steps we've kind of been talking about before project (laughs) development agreements and you know customers that don't have you know the technical resources or the legal resources and it's just as much that when you're going into an agreement you better have a good legal team too yeah yeah definitely exactly yep uh but no I, i would agree with the general sentiment yeah performance contracts i've been involved with uh yeah, you know, I think 1 million dollars capital costs would probably be, you know, a, a small one and mm-hmm. then you know going up to 88 million, 100 million maybe, and those are for the larger federal type of uh projects. Right.
0: Cool. Yeah, I just wanted to like just to give the listeners maybe a feel for, you know, where where these things land if if they're not familiar with it and quite honestly I wasn't necessarily uh fully familiar with it as well, so I think that's a great. and well, in, in the
2: f- failure that the cost there can obviously be commensurate with the size of the project and can oh yeah. range from a total washout, you yep. know, for, forever. Yep. Uh, and some of the things I've read, you know, going through back through some archives, you know, some of them seem like pretty egregious mistakes to be made that just never were caught and carried through. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of examples. You know, there's, I mean, sure, I think some ECMS or FIMs. Are more susceptible to quote-unquote failure you know because they just involve a little more things that can go wrong and can be overlooked but i mean i've seen lighting projects that have technically failed in bad wow. ways. you know
0: that seems like and it's pretty usually park.
2: goes back to a uh, design and engineering and just a a mistake made with counting you know not to belittle it because these are big projects but just yep. a mistake you know with the the accounting of the numbers and mm-hmm. uh You know some other less noble mistakes too have been made that really you know you know you're 30 40 percent under what you thought you were gonna be that's a that's a big failure on a lighting project and that's a bad day it can be kind of the worst failure to have in a bundle of projects in a performance contract because typically it's the lighting project that's driving and carrying you know the other longer payback items so Right,
0: that can be a real tough one to recover from in the long term. I see. It seems like every every not everyone, but a lot of these performance contracts. Yeah, like if you you know talking to a school district, that that's what they're doing. They're retrofitting fluorescent to LED, and then a, whatever other stuff. But that's like the that's a big part of it. It seems like oh yeah the lighting industry is yeah. fantastic because they keep coming out with better technology yeah. every yep. few years so yeah you can reduce your wattage consumption by i don't know 50 60 70 probably when you just it, put it. depending in. on what you have and then yeah. it gets better in five seven years yeah
3: sure.
0: yeah yeah that's crazy so uh, you were kind of leading into what my next question was was going to be is like where do these failures where do you see these failures generally occurring then is it all in the you know, boots on the ground engineering phase, and that's probably where the the boiler example Mark gave us happened, you you know, I would assume. But, you know, is that always where it happens? It, equipment maintenance, poor equipment selection. It seems like all of this kind of falls on the ESCO on that regard. Um, you could call it a failure if the the owner changes schedules or how they operate the facility, but then it's probably... Technically not a failure, but um, you know where you see these. Where where do you see like a lot of common failures occurring? Engineering phase.
1: Well, so I would even go further back. If you if you equate this process to you know the the commissioning process, somewhere at the beginning somebody had an idea where this should all start. Be it asco right. be it the owner, mm-hmm. and at that point communications start mm-hmm. and each side develops their internal set of expectations, right? So when we're all done, any dispute is basically the disconnect between the expectations of the two parties, whether they're embedded in the contract or not. So all I'm saying is that these contracts require collaboration, a trust relationship, to be successful. And to do that, you have to have open, honest communication all the time. No, you know, these uh, projects, there's lots of great presentations, and there's lots of semantics, which are open for parsing. But it's really better just to be clear, concise, honest with all communications back and forth. So it minimizes the amount of that Disconnect between owner and ESCO uh, expectations. You know, from there you get into the audit, the engineering, Mm -hmm. installation, the measurement and verification, the maintenance, all that. Where hey, there's plenty to go wrong. But if we set the stage properly with clear communications up front of expectations, we'll be better off. Mm -hmm. So
0: it's all a a lot. Yeah, you got it. That's the foundation really for the whole project. Obviously. So if that's not good. Stable, whatever, then uh, issues can derive down the road.
1: And, and stemming and to, from that. And not to, uh, I'm not trying to monopolize the conversation. No, no, no. Typically, what we see is compounding errors. So that's right. you know, something happens in the audit, it's compounded in engineering, and maybe somebody starts to get an inkling during installation. So there might be an attempt to, you know, modify during. Installation Mm -hmm. and then the poor m&b guy shows up and says, "Uh oh, what am I going to do with this? (laughs) Um, It can be bad. Yeah, so It can be a simple large uh, Error in any one of those phases, but usually we see some compounding of error.
2: That's a that's such a key point mark that whole propagation of errors and the longer an error I guess lingers and is built in and, and built upon the more confessor and like what was once a simple mathematical error, let's say, you know, has now turned into you've got teams of people, dozens of people building upon essentially this error. And maybe it's not as, you know, extreme as, as I say, but it's very difficult to unwind that and get back to why did we think this cooling load was what we thought? Right. You know. And oops, oh, we forgot this, or we double counted that. Yep. And next thing you know, you got a plant built already. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. In my experience, I would say they're all over the place from, yeah, like I said, the design uh, with uh, that lighting example I gave, just, and there's plenty of other just mathematical mistakes that are made. And my, my solution to that is better QC and, and mm-hmm. peer review. Mm-hmm. At least that's I find it. it's been a term that sounds really great, and 100% of people are 100% on board of it, but about 20% of people actually do it. And it seems such awesome. a shame because, uh, like, Mark, you guys, Clayton, you guys say that, fresh eyes or whatever, cold yep. eye review. Cold eye yep, review. cold eye review. Just, you know, and what's better than a cold eye review is somebody that's got a warm eye, and he's working on another project, and he's done this stuff before, and <laughs> just to get that sanity check, there's just so many things that are yep. just, you're doing... You know full hand on face at that point uh construction wise yeah i mean there's you know been a lot of issues with controls i would say but these are ones that are in that at least my category of you know clearly recoverable and and the company the esco may take a hit in the first year if they didn't find these problems like Oh, the schedules weren't installed as we designed.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. The
2: strategy wasn't put in, Mm -hmm. or they can range to, you know, I have experience with this one project that had a uh, combined heat and power plant, and somehow that just still escapes a lot of us is that it was supposed to be a a load following. It was supposed to follow the electric load, and then whatever heat they took off, you know, was used, obviously, no problems Mm -hmm. there, but for some reason, they couldn't do that Kept on having problems with the gen set tripping off and everything. So during construction and, you know, I think the M and V team must've disappeared for a few months. They just turned it into a, a base load machine. And so, but it really, it, it, you know, it made a change obviously to the savings that were expected, but there was that again, that disconnect between, you know, very competent and capable people putting in this equipment and, and operating it, but they didn't know what the expectations were. Right. So they just said, "Oh, we can just start this thing up, and we run it. That's good." So, and then you got operation stuff, which is you know after it's turned over, and again, these contracts have a lot of language over who is responsible for the operation. And most times, it is the customer and their people. But sometimes the ESCO or Mm -hmm. another entity will come in and
0: run uh, different assets. But you know, things can go wrong in that phase as well. But it it makes sense how you're saying it. Like those things are recoverable, pretty. Could be pretty easily, like systematically, if you have a failure, if you want to call it the failure, you know.
1: So, so, Nick, have you ever seen these uh, steam microturbines used? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So I I get a call, hey, take a look at this, you know, tell us what you think. So I look at the study, I'm familiar with the building, and um, the microturbine shows this amount of steam consumption times 12 months per year which it mm-hmm. seems odd that it's flat load because i know the building you know and the process uses steam on a less regular basis than that and then i started backing the numbers backwards and basically they had taken the annual steam consumption and multiplied that by 12 months a year so the savings were over predict over predicted by a factor of 12. oh they
2: multiply oh wow okay
1: so i called him up and said hey uh you have an issue. This is your annual steam consumption. Right. But it's shown as monthly and multiplied by 12. And wow. then it's multiplied by 20 years. So it, it, it's definitely wrong. Oh, they're starting this up next week. I said, well, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you better start it up today. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. It, it was a cold eye review, but it yep. was too late. Mm. <laughs> And my guess is it
2: probably did not take long and not because you're super smart or anything, Mark, but just because it's just a different perspective coming 15 in. 15 minutes. I'll be, how right. much? 15 minutes. Yeah. 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 And again, those are just the benefits of those things. So that's a great example of uh, propagation of errors, if you will. Mm-hmm. If right. They're starting it up next week. What do we do now? <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, let's talk about that, actually. Like, so what happens when you do identify a problem and whatever part of, what you know, whatever phase of, Construction or, you know, wherever you're at in this project, like problem is identified. What's next? Well, um, lawyers okay. and finger pointing and,
1: all oh, bad man, or
0: not, not at first. Okay, no,
1: no, no. That this was remedied in the most acceptable way, which is to sit down with the ESCO and say, uh, "Here we go." And what are our options? And mm-hmm uh there was other work that could be performed economically which would provide additional benefits and mm-hmm. uh so the esco basically said okay we'll do this and everybody walked away still friends still uh satisfied right and really that's the, that's the best solution is where you have that trust relationship with mm-hmm. the esco that you can call them up and say we have a concern or we have an issue yeah let's sit down and talk about it and because otherwise you know the next steps are painful and costly
0: which makes sense so at the end of the day obviously the esco still took a hit if you want to call it that but they went about it cordially i don't know <laughs> so yeah, like we're we know we made a mistake and let's it, figure out how was, to resolve this
1: right it was a it was a speed bump they yep. didn't you know derail the train and uh yep. you know send everything into, you know, the, into the abyss where it couldn't be ever recovered from.
2: Yeah. Now, and most projects have, or most performance contracts nowadays have, uh, you know, pretty clear language in how disputes will be, will be handled. And and foremost, at least in in my experience, is that the ESCO does have a chance to go in there and obviously make it right. Mm -hmm. Whether that means investing more into that project that's not performing or finding additional measures, if you will, to fold into the project. But like Mark said very early on in this conversation, a lot of times that can just translate into uh, services in kind. So, you know, the savings may not be there. We may, you know, not be able to achieve $40,000 in savings, but what if we take over your chiller maintenance contract, Mm -hmm. you know, and do that with that money that we should pay you,
0: uh again, I don't know. I have kind of mixed feelings about that and everything, but uh well it seems like it's very perception based at that point. Like does the owner feel like they're getting what is what is lost worth what is lost, if you want to call it that sometimes. So Oh I assume, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. you could they could perceive that yeah, we're we're back to where we should be, but in reality, like we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, doesn't cost the much to bill at $200 an hour for maintenance, but yet the owner thinks that it's equal to whatever's being lost, which necessarily well, and, may not be the case. And for some
2: reason, what sticks with me is that, you know, there was probably a very fine company doing your chiller maintenance before. Right. Now they don't have a contract because another entity, you know, messed up on something. Yeah and this is our way of making the contract right. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: now there's three parties involved, one party that didn't have any say in any of this who ends up losing. So, and a, in a lot true. of the times, you know, the federal government is easy because I've always heard when there is a shortfall, you know, and the ESCO has to write a check, it goes back to just the, the general fund. You know, it doesn't go back to these, the site or anything like that. So there is that, I think. Uh,
1: well, and for uh, that reason, Nick, the the federal government generally doesn't want a fund a check to go back to the general fund so there's a higher inclination to accept goods and services at the specific site
2: bingo and that is it and
1: i you know like i said i don't
2: like i said i've mixed i've
1: mixed feelings on a lot of things well, so <laughs> my guideline you know we get involved in a lot of contracts um that have that, that they're past the sitting down at the table and trying to, to yeah. walk through it so in order of Amplitude, we go from okay, we can't get there. Now we are going to have court ordered mediation or arbitration. Mediation mm-hmm. being preferable. Arbitration, you really have a lot of education work to do in terms of educating the arbitrator as to the both mm-hmm. engineering side and contract side. These are not as common as many other issues that come in front of arbitration, or you go to court. So When we get to mediation and there is an issue uh, where we're, let's, I I try and distinguish between the capital process and the maintenance process so that when there's been a iffy part of the capital installation project and we're trying to substitute services for that, I, I really am not on the page where that should happen. Mm-hmm. When you are making capital improvements for a facility and as a rem- that are done improperly or not done at all, and we want to uh, put in uh, maintenance or a expense item, I don't like that from an economic perspective or from a real property perspective. What we should have gotten during the performance contract is an asset that would pr- most probably outlive the life of the contract. And instead, we're going to substitute an expense item for that which has no value at the end of the contract. Oh, well, we put. well put, Mark. That's yeah. a, my feelings aren't so mixed anymore.
0: That helped. <laughs> well, and I don't know how it necessarily works, but I imagine as an owner, if the ESCO takes over your maintenance program, you I assume it, it could be a, a fight sometimes to even make that happen. If I don't know, maybe not, but. There's probably still just a long, could be a long battle for however many years. Well, and again,
2: sometimes I've seen where, you know, there's been a failure of some sort that offer is made of in-kind services. Mm -hmm. And just like you're alluding to, Clayton, the customer says, "Eh, I'm not so crazy about you having your fingers in any more of my business right now. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You couldn't, you got your math wrong very like 14 months
0: ago. Yeah. Nobody
2: uncovered it. Yeah. I don't want you maintaining my chillers. What happens then? Then you probably go down one of those roads where where Mark's kind of going to, which which is, you know, an escalation of things. But again, part of the process and it's nothing Mm -hmm. to be afraid of.
0: And sometimes that's just what you need to do. So I, I always assumed that was just a long, rough road, but doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And it doesn't mean if it is, it's a bad thing. It's just like you said, part of the process sometimes. Yeah, and I think
2: there's tons of these negotiations that go on all the time, and these mm-hmm. things are worked out, you know, in a very small percentage of them, and ever get to the point where they're making a newspaper, let alone right. sit in court, right? But,
0: okay, you know, that's right.
2: serious money you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. Should take it seriously because yep. you know the other thing is a lot of these, you know, it's other people's money when it comes down to it in all these cases. Really, the owner. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they, have, they they have to protect that that interest too. And so does the ESCO mm-hmm. and so does the government if they're
0: involved. Yeah, I like it. Neat little concept. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think we're at a pretty good point where we covered a lot about these performance contracts. And uh, before we start to wrap it up, I guess I'll ask the question, is there anything else you guys want to add to the discussion?
1: Well, I think w- the question is, how to begin the remediation process? Number one is to identify the prop the, the problem. Mm-hmm. So, what you need to do early on first engage an expert, and at that point, talk about the magnitude of the problem. Right. So you have to be able to understand cash flow discounting, you know, uh, energy escalation, all those kinds of things that wrap mm-hmm. up into what's called a damages model, which says, mm-hmm. okay. If we have a shortfall, for instance, what is the present value today of that shortfall and what's the impact and is that number reasonable to remediate the contract if your intent is to terminate the contract or are we looking at goods and services in kind? Mm -hmm. But any of those, whether it's mediation, arbitration, litigation, you have to start with what's the rough order of magnitude of this problem because all these remedies are, they, they take time and they're expensive. A lot of highly paid professionals will be involved if it's, you know, of, of any size and it takes time, discovery, all those great things that, uh, you know, I, I enjoy it because it's nice to have no emotional attachment to the project. Right. Audit it, finish yep. it, engineer it, develop it. So all those documents and discovery, it's its a giant puzzle that you have to piece together And a lot like CSI, what happened to get us to where we're at? And you can find one, two, five, seven, you know, missteps, miscues that take us off the path to unequivocal success and put us in a position where now we have a boundary issue as to what is successful and what's not successful. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great point, Mark, about the,
2: you know, first figure out the magnitude And as an aside, that's a great life lesson too. you know, first figure out the magnitude of the problem you're dealing with. And if it's huge, then you ought to spend a lot of time with it. But yeah, you don't want to get down the road where you're really talking about, you know, a couple grand in savings or something. And the ESCOs, they make this decision all the time, right? Because if there's, let's say, uh, one of the ECMs in their bundle that, you know, they don't think they can quite, you know, for many cases, whatever, they don't think they can fully justify all of the savings, but maybe they can make a good stab at going after half the savings, but then they assess and they say, we're gonna get some pushback on this, right? This will end up costing a lot of time, a lot of justification, and there's been times where they said, you know, this year, we're not claiming any of those savings, and we're gonna tell them why, and here's our, here's our internal remediation plan, and they hope that next year they can come back and then include those savings into it. So some of those decisions are made even before you approach, you know, that type of uh, joint remediation or discussion problem.
3: Mm-hmm. And not
2: that it's not transparent to the government. It is fully, but the risk isn't there to fight it at that point.
0: Right. Right. Huh. So Mark, to your point, it seems like, uh, you know, when you when you bring in the professional, that's a another thing where you you, you probably want to have the right you got to have the right person or somebody that really knows what they're doing because you could I don't know get the either end could get the short end of the stick if you want to call it that if the um you know the analysis isn't done necessarily properly or brings in everything to account and what have you too huh
1: so here's my lesson for today. It's always worthwhile hire, hiring skilled professionals yeah right it, whether it's attorneys make sure that they have familiarity and understanding of performance contracts or your technical engineering resources you know do you guys know who Willie Sutton was? No the famous bank robber of course Willie Sutton was a famous oh, man in the 30s <laughs> he, was a, he was a diminutive guy. Um, always well-dressed, dapper, Mm well-spoken. And so when they caught him, uh, a reporter was interviewing Willie Sutton and Willie, they asked Willie, how, you know, you're small in stature. You never raised your voice. How did you manage to be so successful? And Willie's response was, I find you get much better results with a kind word and a gun than a kind word alone. So The moral of that story is: Oh man, (laughs) please, lawyer.
2: What is the moral of the story? I missed it. I was laughing. Hire
1: a good lawyer. Hire Hire a good good technical representative. representative. So when you go to the table, this is it's clear your motivation is to be successful, right?
0: Yeah, true,
2: true. Well, there is an old adage that says everybody you meet knows something you don't. That's right, and that's very true when it comes to this and. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of expertise out there yeah uh, and that was your lesson I think you preambled with this is my lesson for today hire a good lawyer yeah hire a good lawyer yeah Yeah. I I would add to that and say expertise on your team when it comes to well really any contracts what we're talking about performance contracts you know the government they have separate agencies they bring in the core of engineers as their experts and they have other teams right. and other private organizations they work with too. But especially for those other school districts, hospitals, yeah, you need to get somebody that, and not just legal representation, but somebody that has a technical eye on this stuff too, to help avoid those those problem roads that you might be going down. Exactly.
0: Well, I mean, and it, it probably goes back to, uh, I don't know what the higher if you want to call it that a good esco too right i mean obviously you want to have
1: well we see a lot of um customers sending out rfqs requests for qualifications yeah. as opposed to rfps or as a preamble to an rfp so yeah um there's nothing wrong with that either
0: yeah no i mean you could a lot of that could probably be mitigated if you get a I don't know. Maybe not. I don't have a whole lot of experience in it. Maybe these mistakes occur more often than not, depending on, who, it doesn't matter who the ESCO is, but it uh, seems like that, that's a big point where you want to make, okay, get the right people to start the project too. So, Where do we stand as a group, you, know, you two gentlemen, I guess my, my opinion, I don't have a whole lot of experience in this, but where do you guys stand then on performance contracts?
1: Uh, uh, I'll give you mine. I I think in 80% of the cases, they're good to very good. Mm -hmm. In 10% of the cases, they're mediocre to slightly dissatisfied. And in 10% or less, there's a performance issue. And, uh, you know, in 2%, 3% of the cases, they're just plain bad. But by and large, it's like buying a car. You know, odds are you'll get a good one.
0: Yeah, well
1: put. Wow,
2: odds are you'll get a good one.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) you're supposed to get a good one for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lemon law for a reason because even you know, motor companies with you know six sigma and everything else, every once in a while you get a dud, right? true that is true but you can avoid those even
2: that circumstance i think with buying a car and like buying a big project uh yeah there's a lot of inherent risks in them and and they're complex uh no i tend to agree with you mark i mean most of them are good in in the the industry has evolved quite a bit oh yeah in in 20 30 years or whatever Mm -hmm. and i think you're seeing less of those you know uncredentialed type of companies coming in and unsuspecting customers and offering them, you know, nothing in return for very low value work, essentially. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now with these big things are, they're a great vehicle, like I said, for, for entities to get work done and make real improvements in their facilities. Now there's other, some things with, you know, the thought of financing the light bulb for 20 years that doesn't really sit well with me. But I understand it's part of the bundle of the project. So Mm -hmm. they've got to finance that light bulb if they want to pay for, you know, the huge boiler plant that's also Mm -hmm. going in as part of the project or Mm -hmm.
1: or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: that's, you know, they're, they're not perfect, but, and they're not for everybody definitely. But Mm -hmm. I think they certainly have a a well-deserved place and how buildings are modernized and renovated and retrofitted and even
0: built. Couldn't have said it any better myself. I agree. I yeah. Agree. Awesome, guys. Well, this is a great discussion. Great podcast. I had a lot of fun. Uh, learned a lot, obviously, like all of the podcasts we do. So, and hopefully to our listeners, you know, when you guys join and you enjoy it and you you guys are learning stuff in these. So, um, well, let me, let me add one last thing, just if I may. Yeah. I'm sorry. No. I just, you know,
2: to, to people out there listening, I think the message has been clear about hiring the right resources to. Mm-hmm. And that's whether you're on the ESCO side, you have to have the right team involved in that project, right? And there's been plenty yep. of times people have been involved or allocated to projects that maybe they shouldn't have without, you know, other supervision as well. But the same with the, the 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 customer, right? They need to get the right resources on their side if they don't have them too. So you need to be careful about the dealies you make, I guess, because they yeah. are long-term, mm-hmm. and very complicated to get out of and unwind. I made Absolutely. a deal once. This is an aside, if you will, but uh I don't know if I've told you this story before, guys, but I, I made a bad deal once when I was about nine or ten years old. And I remember driving down the road with my father running errands. And as any young man I would, you know, you know, sniff if it was you know winter season, you know, you're sniffing your nose. <laughs> you know, whatever yeah. my father would always say, You got a hanky? I'd say no. You go, You want to borrow mine? I'd go, no blah, blah, blah. So this one day we're driving down the road and I'm doing this sniff. And he's like, you got a hanky? I go, no. You want to borrow mine? I said, no. And he said, how about I make you a deal? Every time from now on, I ask you if you have a hanky and you do, I'll give you a dollar. But if you don't, I'm going to smack you on the head. And I said, okay, great. So we drive down the road and 30 (laughs) seconds later, you got a hanky? I go, no. He smacks me on the head. (laughs) Five seconds later, you got a hanky? You know I don't have a hanky. Slaps me on the head again. So that continued for like five miles down the road. And I determined that, hey, you got to be careful about the
0: deals that you make. I had to really think that through. Yeah, that wasn't in the fine print that it started. Immediately. Yeah, and immediately. Without
2: any limitations on uh, the frequency. (laughs) And
1: I never made a dollar. I'll tell you
2: this. I always carry a hanky.
1: I I was going to say that, Nick. You said that was the most important thing you need to take on an energy water.
2: I really did. I did. I know you did. It's the
1: most important thing I take
2: (laughs) anywhere. And now that, like, when I'm coaching soccer, I have two hankies. One's for me. And once for anybody it gets a bloody nose out there, which yeah, Wow.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm the only guy with the hanky. People are like, what is that thing in your pocket? That folded square of fabric. What I gotta say handkerchief.
0: I've never carried one. Oh. Oh. Yeah.
2: <laughs> resurgence in handkerchiefs, I believe, will be forthcoming. <laughs>
0: although, although now I do a little bit. Um because of know, my story? That's no, great. no, no, no. Cause you know, you go into a public place and you gotta throw something over, you know, but yeah
2: oh yeah they're hard to, f- to come by actually yeah
0: yeah a lot of people like those for that now so <laughs> but i like you guys this was a great podcast um for <laughs> listeners i'll <laughs> start wrapping it up stay tuned the next discussion we'll we'll be having the next episode uh is titled should have been caught in commissioning so we'll be covering just a myriad of different things that you know issues that arise or are found that obviously should have been caught in commissioning. So I think that'll be a really fun, interesting podcast as well. So thanks for tuning in guys. Uh, Like always, for more information on us, check out our websites, www.vsenergy.us or www.appliedfacilityscience.com. So thanks a lot and have a great day.